Well, we are continuing in our series here on the life of Abraham and really get to what I think is essentially the climax of that story with Genesis 22. So if you read with me, starting in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God gives us his word so that we can learn from it. So let's pray. Lord, we trust that you speak to us in your word. And through it, we have everything that we need to know you and to know the depth and the height and the length of your love for us and the extravagant riches of your grace that you have for us in Christ Jesus. So would you show those to us this morning, that our faith would be built up. We ask in Christ's name, amen. 
Have you ever done a trust fall? You know what a trust fall is, probably most of you do. Uh, To refresh your memory, you have to stand up on a platform that's, I don't know, three or four feet high, about as high as this, right? You turn your back to your, you know, a bunch of your friends or, <laughs> or co-workers or whoever you're doing this with, right? They've got their arms stretched out and you're supposed to fall backward onto their arms. I remember doing this for the first time in seventh grade. To my recollection, seventh graders may not be the most trustworthy. No offense to our seventh graders. Uh, Although it was a kind of mutually assured destruction situation because everybody had to get up there, right? So you, you better catch each other because if not, you know, somebody's going to get you on the back end of that. The point of the trust fall is, of course, to actually kind of earn trust in one another. Uh, and the blackmail of knowing that others would drop you, we can deliberate on whether that actually builds trust or not. But that's the goal. What Abraham faces in this passage is a test, a test of who he will trust. It is, of course, a test about him, the one who's supposed to trust. It is also a test of the one who is to be trusted in. God is letting himself, you might say, be put to the test. It is about building a practical, experiential trust in God. When we talk about faith, we are talking about learning to trust God. And that's really what this is about. God tests us so that we will trust him, so that our trust will be deepened. And so we'll think about the testing of faith, and we'll think about what tested faith is. So the testing of faith and the tested faith now, the, the testing is, is clear, right? And actually, we're told it's editorialized for us by Moses here, right? God is testing Abraham. We know that from the very beginning. And in verse 2, God doesn't pull any punches, does he? He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Right? I mean, God's just making the point as clear as he possibly can. Take your son, whom you love, and sacrifice him. This is a weird thing, of course, right? Not only is God emphasizing Abraham's love for his son, the unique place of his son, but it also is a morally reprehensible demand. The, we do know this about the ancient Canaanite civilizations. They did practice child worship or child sacrifice in their worship. Uh, one of my seminary professors was part of an excavation in Israel where they uncovered uh, a mass grave of children who had been sacrificed. So this would have, in one sense, this, this might have made sense with the surrounding Society, but we know, of course, later in Deuteronomy, God explicitly forbids child sacrifice. This isn't really a question. But Abraham must have noticed that this was out of step with who he thought God was. The thing I'm certain he noticed was that it jeopardized the whole covenant. Everything God had promised hinges on Isaac. Everything. 
There's no more descendants without Isaac. There's no one. Nothing will happen if Isaac dies. I mean, that must have made sense to him, right? I'm sure that was on his mind. In fact, (laughs) the irony is this comes right after the chapter in which God has told him, send Ishmael away like Sarah wants. So the very fact that he's the only son is already something God has told him to make sure is the situation, that he's your only son. But there's another piece to this too. He's supposed to be offered as a burnt offering. That, in other words, means he is supposed to be a sacrifice for Abraham's sins. You see, one thing that's often missed in this passage, and it gets talked a lot about, is what is clearly communicated when we're told that he's supposed to be a burnt offering, is Abraham knows that his sins are being called to account at the cost of his own son's life. So when we stop and think, how does Abraham make any sense of this? That's a key piece. Abraham's thinking, oh no. And we know he's not perfect. We've heard, we've heard several stories, right, where Abraham's sin has been evident. And he's thinking his sins are being called to account. And the story takes us, and you notice all the details of the preparation, right? I mean, you kind of get this sense of how agonizing each step must have been away, on the way. And yet, there's still something that Abraham's clinging to, right? In verse 5, when he gets to the mountain, he turns to his servants and he says, look, Isaac and I'll be back. And then Isaac, on the way up, says, you know, verse 7, uh, we got all the stuff here. Where's the actual lamb? And in verse 8, right, he says, God will provide it. God will provide the sacrifice. Now, needless to say, commentators have puzzled over this for a long time. Some have implied, of course, that he was misleading Isaac, others that maybe he's in denial of himself, but Hebrews 11 is helpful in this way. Hebrews 11 is a famous passage we've quoted several times in this uh, series where the author of Hebrews is thinking about what the life of faith is like. And this is what he says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You get, you get what the author of Hebrews is on about, right? Isaac's birth was miraculous. So whatever it was that Abraham was thinking through, right, he was, he was realizing that God could even deliver Isaac out of death. So whatever Abraham's confidence is, however much he has got, you know, massive amounts of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> like, I know God is like this, but he's telling me to do this. I know he's told me I have this, <laughs> but if my son dies, how could this possibly happen? You know, as much as he's struggling with all these different things that don't make sense together, he is clinging to that at the very least. Which means, well, one of the things that we're learning in the process here is that faith is not blind, Sometimes we talk about, you know, we have that expression, blind faith. Here's the thing. It may be blind, and Abraham certainly doesn't know what the immediate outcome is going to be. 
Our faith is blind in that sense, right? But of course, we're all blind to that. We don't know what the immediate outcome of our situation is going to be. Nobody knows that. And we're putting faith in something that we can navigate the future. The question is really what we're putting our faith in. What it is we're trusting in to bring about our future. Now, you see, faith doesn't mean knowing the future for certain, at least not the immediate future. But it means knowing for certain the one in whom we trust. You see, that is the difference. This isn't blind faith in ultimately because it is about trusting a God who is reliable, a God who already brought this son miraculously, a God who has continued to provide over and over again. Even when Abraham is screwing up all over the place, God still continues to provide. Even when he sins, he ends up getting blessed. That God has showed that he is faithful to the covenant over and over and over again. Abraham's faith is not blind in that sense. However much he does not understand what is being asked of him, however confused he is about it, it is never blind. His track record is clear. God's track record is clear. Now Abraham needs to offer up what is most precious to him and leave it to God. In that way, then, the testing of our faith tends to clarify things. This is important, right? Tests clarify things. They clarify, I mean, when you're in school, right? They clarify if you know the information or the techniques in solving the problem, right? The, the whole point of a test, I mean, yes, it's about getting a grade, right? I mean, that's what we tend to focus on when we're there, when we're in school. But of course, the, the point of being schooled is so that you know how to do these things, right? You know how to solve problems in life. You know how to recall information that's important, significant, or somehow enriching, right? Like that, these are the reasons we get tested. I've been through several tests that were not school-related <laughs> in my time. I went through a bunch of qualifications when I was in the Navy to stand watches, and they were very stressful. In fact, the whole point was to turn up the stress, right? To give you scenarios with a ticking clock so that you had a sense like, can I, can I actually think through what I need to think through? You were proving it, of course, to those who were going to approve you to stand the watch, but you were also building your own confidence in the process. That I know what to think through. That I know what to do. I've been through, you know, ordination exams in the church. And man, I mean, that's certainly less uh, the ship's in danger any minute and the clock's running out kind of situation. But it is so that you're forced to commit so many things to memory, right? So that they're there when you need them. Right? I mean, it has a purpose. I mean, maybe it gets a little weird sometimes. Maybe people get obsessed with certain things they shouldn't, whatever. But the, the point is, right, the main stuff is there to make you commit it to memory so that you have it. 
The testing of our faith clarifies a number of things. It clarifies what God has promised and what he hasn't promised. Because here's the trick of our mind. We often think God has promised things that he has not promised. We think he has this thing for our lives. Right? My family is going to look like this. Maybe even having a family. And we think all these different choices we are making, this is what God wants for my life. And I got news for you, God hasn't promised them. He has promised that he will work all things for the good of those who love him. But those all things may not be what you have planned. And one of the things that happens when we're tested is that our idea of what God has promised is shown for what it is. Often just our dreams that we want God to rubber stamp. It also shows us what God is like. I mean, how often do you hear the phrase, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. Maybe you've said that at some point. But you know, what follows is almost always heretical. Right? When I, whenever I say I like to think of God as, I mean, I'm probably telling you something that's not really reliable. <laughs> the testing of our faith shows us who God really is, shows us what he's really like. That's consistent with his word. And here's, a, here's another aspect of it that is harder to put our, your finger on, but, the ex, but learning the experience of trusting in him Learning what it feels like is another aspect of what it means to be tested. And maybe some of you have had this experience along the way in life already. When you realize you had to trust the Lord and put it into his hands. And then another situation comes along, right? And you get that same feeling. This is out of my control. I'll have to give it to God. Now, I'm not saying that makes it easy. <laughs> and maybe the stakes are higher the next time down the road. But you learn step by step. God trains us in that way to learn to trust him. Testing then is not accidental to our faith. It's an essential part of what God does to build our faith. He tests us. Because, and this gets us to the second point, the tested faith. The tested faith leans on God's provision. See, this is what starts to emerge in the story. They go to Moria, or, I mean, it's it's often pronounced Moriah in English, but it's Moria. Um, they, they, he goes to Moria, and do you know where that is? This is not in Middle Earth. This is not a Tolkien reference. Well, the funny thing is, it's a name that's not used often elsewhere in the Bible, except Second Chronicles 3 tells us that, it ha- that that is another name for a f- more familiar name, Zion. 
the Temple Mount. The place that the temple was built is the same spot that God took Abraham and Isaac to. It is the same place that God provided. Abraham gets up there. He's about to sacrifice Isaac, right? And the angel shows up, stop, stop. Whenever you, there's a repetition of the names, it's to get your attention, right? The, the, the image is clear, right? Abraham's got the knife in his hand. It is, he is ready to do the deed. And the angel comes in, stop. And he turns and finds a ram in the thicket. Now, it probably isn't a surprise to you if you know anything about the sacrificial system that it's a ram, right? Because sheep were sort of the main stay of the sacrificial system, the daily sacrifice for sins. And that is what's being offered here, right? Instead, instead of Isaac, God provides this ram. God provides. That's the expression, Yahweh Yireh, or in the mangled English transliteration, Jehovah Jireh, right? The Lord will provide. It's often noted, of course, that the firstborn is marked out as belonging to God. It has to be consecrated in the rest of the Old Testament. That's how the system works. And so the lamb then connects clearly this place to the whole sacrificial system. And remember, Genesis is written as a prologue to the rest of the Pentateuch, right? Which is going to outline all of the sacrificial system. So no, no one reading this is, is missing this point, right? It's connected. God provides the sacrifice that is needed. God provides it. And that's the heart of the gospel. What God demands, God provides. What God demands, God provides. That is the good news. What God has demanded of you and me, remember, this is a burnt offering. Abraham knows this is an accounting for his life. And what God demands, he provides. When he demands an accounting for Abraham's life, he provides the ram. Just as, ultimately, he provides his own son. And don't miss this. You see, this is the heart of the gospel. What God demands, God provides, and we so often miss it. And there are many in the church who know a lot about the faith in the sense that they can articulate what they're supposed to believe. They can formulate the creed. They can repeat catechism answers. They can tell you what they learned, but they do not trust that God has provided in any practical way. They know a lot about the faith, but they do not have faith. I don't mean that as a, th- as a like, threat to you to doubt your salvation. What I mean is, to s- is that we've got to understand the difference. We've got to understand the difference between knowing that God has provided and actually trusting the Lord that he has provided. And in that way, you can be in the church your whole life and resist the gospel. 
even though you outwardly profess it. Whenever we are caught thinking to ourselves, I'm going to take care of this myself. We've gone wrong. When we think, well, look, God calls us to this. I got to take care of this myself. We're resisting the good news. Not to say it doesn't call us into action, but the one we are looking to provide from first to last is the Lord. What God demands, he provides. And the question is whether our really a matter of our pride and whether we will resist the good news, thinking we can provide for ourselves, that we can meet what is de- demanded. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because he is the provision. Because what is being enacted here is a partial glimpse into what will really happen. When the Son, the only Son, lays his life down for us. When the son of Isaac lays down his life on our behalf, this is what is offered. This is the great exchange, right? The Lord providing Jesus' life in our place. And what, you know, all the, all the doctrinal stuff that flows out of that that can get very complicated, it's all really that simple, isn't it? It's Jesus' life in our place. What God has demanded, he has provided. He has given us his son in our place. And everything that we need is provided in that act, in the sacrifice of Jesus for us everything we need. When your life is called, when an accounting is called for your life, what will you do? Will you try to prove that you did it? That you met the demands? I mean, that's really, that's simple. Those who have faith in Jesus trust that he has provided everything. They're not trying to prove that they can meet the demands of God. In that sense, right, I mean, there's two principal things that flow out of the the work of Jesus. One of them we call justification, right? One of them, that is about God meeting us as judge, giving a verdict over our lives. And what has Jesus done but given his life for us, taking taking the judgment we deserve and given us his perfect, earned righteousness. So that when God approaches us as a judge, the answer is already given. That we're right in his eyes. Not for what we've done, but what Jesus did on our behalf. And the other principal gift of that sanctification is also just as much a gift, a provision of God through Jesus. 
Because even the change that God is working into our lives to teach us to put off sin, to put on the fruit of the Spirit, all of those things are about learning to live after Jesus, learning to live in his likeness by the Spirit that he has given. So all of them are given to us by Jesus through his act of sacrifice on our behalf. So that the tested faith then leans on the provision of God in Christ. That's what tested faith does. It leans on what God has provided. What he demanded, he provided. But there's another aspect of a tested faith. And this is just as significant. It not only leans on what God has provided, it learns God's character. And I think sometimes this gets missed in this story. Because we see the substitute, the sacrifice, we see all those things, and we miss what's going on in Abraham. Because remember that he is called to give his son, his only son. Notice how often that's repeated, right? That, that is repeated over and over again. Anytime God mentions his son, he says his son, his only son. Because Abraham is willing to sacrifice for what is more important. That's why the conditions of the covenant are met in this sense in verses 15 to 18. It's not say, God isn't saying, look, because you did the right thing, therefore I'm going to fulfill the things that I promised to you. He is saying, because you have grown, I will continue in those promises. Because your faith has deepened, I will continue on in them. Not as if Abraham could unearn them, but because, and we've talked about this along the way, the goal of the covenant isn't merely to meet those other ends, but that God himself would be Abraham's very great reward. Abraham is learning something of the Father's heart. He is learning what God's love in action is really like. Because make no mistake, this chapter echoes down through the Bible. It echoes into the, maybe the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The echo back to Genesis 22 is crystal clear. This was about the father giving his only son on our behalf. What Abraham is starting to understand then is the very sacrificial heart of God. And tested faith learns what sacrificial love is like which means it's learning what God's heart is like. Not by, merely, not by merely accepting the fruit of what Jesus has given, but accepting and understanding and growing in the depth of its appreciation of the heart behind the action. Abraham is learning 
what the sacrificial love of God is like. Because God is the one who sends his son, his only son, whom he loves, to die for us. That's the sacrificial heart of God. That's what he wants to grow in Abraham. That's what he wants to grow in you, is a sacrificial heart. The whole point of our faith, of its testing, is so that we would learn to love others sacrificially. Most of all, God. Then our neighbors, even our enemies. The whole point of the test of faith is so that we would learn what God's own heart is like. His own sacrificial love. And I know that we resist that. I know we resist the idea that to really grow means to be sacrificial, but the more we resist it, the more we have to admit that then there is a difference between the way we want to love others and the way we want others to love us. We don't want to have to sacrifice, but that is exactly what we know we need from others, is that they love us sacrificially. that they give of themselves to care for us. But love gets, becomes powerful, it becomes clear by sacrifice. That's what's hard about learning to love others well because it always involves sacrifice. The best illustration I know of this, uh, I came across several years ago. Um, it was a first-person account in the New York Times called My First Lesson in Motherhood. Um, it is an adoption story, and I mean, a real story. Uh, a woman named Elizabeth Fitzsimmons wrote this. And she tells a story of flying from the United States to China uh, to adopt uh, their daughter. Uh, whose name was Natalie. She was a young toddler at the time. And uh, as soon as they arrive, they notice that there's some developmental concerns. And as they change her diaper, they see some scars at the base of her spine. And uh, so they go in search of answers, right? They bring her to a number of doctors. There's CT scans. There's all this other stuff going on. The doctors verified that, in fact, there had been some sort of sloppy operation when she was an infant to remove a cyst or something from the bottom of her spine. She now had a form of uh, spina bifida, and the prognosis was not good. They, uh, her, for her physical development, you know, they expected it to be very poor probably in a wheelchair her whole life. And I'll pick up with what she writes. She says, in cases like these, we can make a rematch with another baby, the one in charge said. The rest of the process would be expedited and we would go home on schedule. We would simply leave with a different girl. And she goes on to talk about how they had filled out a questionnaire, a long questionnaire about what kinds of health concerns they felt they could take on, which they could not. And she starts to imagine their home, 
being transformed. Then she says this. I pictured myself boarding the plane with some faceless replacement child. And then explaining to friends and family that she wasn't Natalie, that we had left Natalie in China because she was too damaged. How could I face myself? How would I ever forget? I knew this was my test. My life's worth distilled into a moment. Her test. You may be happy to know that the doctors, when they brought her home, were able to do a lot for Natalie, and she can even walk, and the story goes on. But the first lesson in motherhood that Elizabeth Fitzsimmons learned was that love is sacrificial. And she's right. And that's just a picture, just the barest glimpse of the length that God goes that he has gone for you and me. Because this is the heart of God. That he would send his son, his only son, whom he loves, to be a sacrifice for you and me. A tested faith not only leans on God for provision, but learns his character. And what testing will do for you, for me, is to teach us God's very heart. And there is no lesson worth knowing, worth learning more than that. Let's pray. Father, We praise you that you sent your son, your only son, whom you love for us. We thank you that Jesus has laid down his life on our behalf. And we pray that you would grow a faith in us individually and together as a church that knows the depths of your love, the greatness of your character, and how effective it has really been. All that Jesus has done for us, would you teach us by your spirit? We ask in Christ's name, amen.